Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about back to school, teachers versus unions, the California Teachers Union demands, AOC explains New York City crime, and Democrat destruction, Biden and the suburbs. And of course, I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome again to America Can We Talk and to today's First Five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. There is a lot of talk, of course, about whether schools should open this fall in light of the COVID-19 crisis, coronavirus crisis, and different states having different reactions. Florida uh, has ordered schools to open. Uh, Betsy DeVos, who is the education secretary, has said, you know, we may withhold federal funds, education funds to school districts that won't open. But in the middle of all that, there was an amazing two bits of news I wanted to share with you about the whole idea of opening schools. One was MSNBC chose to do a panel. They did a panel of teachers and they were asking these teachers do you, you teachers, do you support schools opening in the fall normally in light of the coronavirus? Do you support schools opening? Here's that clip. Would you let your kids go back to school? I will. My kids are looking forward to it. Yes. Period. Absolutely. Absolutely. As much as I can. <laughs> Without a hesitation. Without a hesitation, yes. I have no concerns about sending my child to school in the fall. I would let my kids go back to school. Dr. John Torres, NBC News. They all said yes. Okay, I love that ending. By the way, I misspoke. It's pediatricians. So these are doctors being surveyed by MSNBC. Obviously not the answer that one uh, host was looking for when all of these pediatricians said, sure, they can go back to school. And you hear many teachers making those statements around the country about, you know, yeah, we should go back to school, time to go back to school. But I also want to share with you, we're gonna talk about it more in the next segment, but just a hint of how the California teachers in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Unified School District, put out a statement, and you can read the entire statement on our website, americacanwetalk.org, but they were asked, you know, essentially California schools, we have all these kids in California, obviously they've been homeschooled or some ver or maybe not schooled at all since school shut down. Should we return the fall? And the teachers union put out this statement. I'm gonna close out the first five by just reading you a couple of sentences in the preliminary document. I mean, literally the very beginning, the introduction to this lengthy argument made by the Los Angeles Unified School District Teachers Union. This is the United Teachers of Los Angeles Union, what they had to say. Let me just read the opening couple of sentences, what they had to say. LAUSD, which is Los Angeles Unified School District, they clearly want to get back to school with their students, but the underlying question every step is given broader societal conditions, how do we open schools in a way that ensures benefits outweigh the risks? Here's what they had to say that is simply mind-blowing. The COVID-19 pandemic in the United States underscores the deep equity and justice challenges arising from our profoundly racist, intensely unequal society. 
This is the formal statement by the Los Angeles Unified School District, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, their union statement about whether they should go back to school. They call America, uh, they refer to it as, as that the crisis, the pandemic, created the, uh, underscored the deep equity and justice challenges arising from our profoundly racist, intensely unequal society. Went on to say, unlike other countries that recognize protecting lives is the key to protecting livelihoods, the United States has chosen to prioritize profits over people. They go on to just rip into the United States, into our government, into our culture, into our economy as their basic argument for why the only way they can open schools in Los Angeles Unified School District is with massive and understand nothing less than totally Marxist demands made by this teachers union. I'm going to go through, I think it's important enough to talk about them. I'm going to go through some of them in the very next segment here in the show today just to understand a couple of things, but I'll just tell you why I think it's so important. Number one, why would anyone, any parent who has a hint of love of America, any parent who has a hint of patriotism ever send their child for a day to Los Angeles Unified School District? You have teachers who hate America at the level they do. They are leveling these ugly charges. I mean, this is the ugliest, just vitriol, at the United States, why would someone send their child to that school is a very good question. Anyone who loves America. Number two, how do we get here that we have truly the spokesman for a massive teachers union opening this document, not with the question of how can we keep children safe? Where are we in the pandemic? Where are the numbers? You know, how safe is it for children? What are the safety things to put in place? But just a vitriolic takedown of America, this is what they thought was the most important thing to put in the cover page, the introduction to their entire list of impossibly absurd demands, which I'll get to in the next segment. But it also tells you how successful the radical Marxist left in this country has been, that they've been able to invade the public schools, invade the teachers' unions, and spread their ugly dishonest lies and vitriol about America into the public school system. The Marxists in this country have for decades been working to put there and they have to convince Americans to hate this country, to hate freedom, to hate free markets, to hate everything about America in order to sell their Marxist ideas. What you're hearing out of these, this teachers union, is a result of decades of efforts by the Marxist left in this country to introduce hatred of America as a norm, as a basic assumption about what anyone might think about this country. You have Los Angeles Unified School District saying, you know, eventually we could reopen, but the list of demands, we'll get to the next segment, but they're all premised on the idea that their job as teachers is not to make sure the children who will come to school sometime eventually learn math and reading and writing and science, biology, chemistry, foreign languages. These people are instilling in the next generation utter hatred of the American society, utter hatred of the construct of our society, utter hatred of freedom, free markets, the entire constitutional structure of our country is, is an object of ridicule, scorn, and flat-out hatred on the part of these teachers, and it shows in what they wrote. 
And so I'll close out the first five today by saying this. The reason it matters to understand this, why I want to talk about it is, I don't think Los Angeles Unified School District, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, I don't think they're unique. I don't think the rest of the country is just, you know, brimming with intelligent, well-informed, patriotic, America-loving people and the teachers throughout the teachers unions. I will say there are millions of wonderful teachers. I'm very good friends with some school teachers and some retired school teachers. There are millions of great teachers and there are teachers who don't want to be teaching this vitriol about America, but who holds the power in the teaching world in this country? Who speaks for the teachers? Who lobbies this ugly, vicious attack on America on behalf of teachers? It is the radical left that controls the teachers' unions. The radical left that has decided they simply hate America and everybody else, including the students they teach, are going to learn to hate it too. And that, my very fine friends, is today's first five. I want to go on and tell you a little bit more about what these teachers had to say because it's not just that they want to rant and rave and call America names. They have very, very specific targeted demands about America. And this is what these, again, Los Angeles teachers unions, their formal statement, this is what they're saying will be necessary in order to uh, have America come back. They want, they, they spend much of their document talking about vulnerable populations, um, about African-American students, students with disabilities, uh, students of color. They have a new, um, or at least new to me, acronym which is BIPOC, B-I-P-O-C, Black Indigenous People of Color. And so they talk a lot in this document about the, the BIPOC segment of their students, as well as those who are disabled. And you would think these people live in some third world starving nation. When you're finished reading how these people, these teachers in the teachers union, write about those students, think about them, think about their families. You would think these students live in some literally remote third world starving country instead of the United States of America. So they have, they launch forward basically with their demands related to how, what is needed before we can open, premised on this whole uh, BIPOC and all of the disadvantages that people, um, they describe people of color suffer in our country. And so, um, they have a, uh, they want to, they talk about the idea of having uh, many, many more resources and having them safely and equitably uh, divided. But I just want to go through some of the demands they make because I am not, you know, I don't want to just tell you labels like they're extreme and radical and Marxist. I'm going to tell you what they're actually saying. So this is the teachers union saying before we can come back safely and they're literally going to hold school opening hostage, you understand, until they at least get to negotiate some of these and probably they, they would say until we get them we need all the above and we're not opening school we're not coming to work and so some of the things they they are demanding paid sick leave for all parents uh, in the los angeles uh, school district so they can uh, keep their symptomatic children home they want contact tracing intense contact tracing throughout the entire los angeles unified school district um, they are, they have a big emphasis on hygiene. This is good, you know, wash hands, all those kind of things, but they go on way, way, way past, you know, health conditions and, and things like contact tracing, which itself is an onerous intrusion of, and many families do not want it, but they go beyond that. Uh, they'd want explicit plans, uh, in place to deal with the social emotional trauma and continued stress amidst the panic, including, uh, increased mental health supports including increased staffing of counselors, psychologists, uh, social workers, all, uh, you know, uh, private uh, uh, physician assistants. They want to have 
special teams to come in in the school district just to deal with the trauma of the pandemic and they want they have implementing they want they're saying they're taking language from the cdc to implement even a portion of the covid 19 best practices out of the cdc requires additional funding so they're saying best practices you know cd puts out cdc puts out best practices means like in the perfect world you would do everything here's if you had the perfect world you would do this so they have um estimates that the average school district would need to spend an additional 1.8 million dollars to safely reopen schools under the best practices extrapolating the cdc's numbers to the size of the los angeles unified school district they're saying they need about 250 more million more dollars this isn't even the worst the worst of it let me now go through with you the demands they're making in order to safely open los angeles unified school district they want at least they're talking about experts saying we need at least 500 billion b as in boy billion as a federal bailout this is on top of all the money that the federal government has already allotted in the cares act we talked about that this is money coming out of washington going to families suffering in some way largely because of loss of employment or being furloughed or in some other way having financial challenges based on the uh, pandemic the virus and so they have the federal bailout um, of they're saying under cares and heroes wasn't nearly enough those are the two federal acts cares and heroes they want more funding for k-12 through in the realm of and they're saying for their school district alone nearly a billion b as in boy billion nationwide 500 billion at least more bailout money just to go to families this isn't even about coming to the schools this is just to the families who suffered under the virus they want to have medicare for all not kidding this is the demand of los angeles unified school district the teachers union telling washington because we had a virus medicare for all must pass medicare for all everybody gets free health care just like medicare free for everybody health care for all i mean just a just crazy level uh, they make repeated reference to the increase the higher percentage of people in the black community who are succumbing to either susceptible to or succumbing to the virus and they point to that as a reason that they have an inordinately high or a higher than the national average percentage of students in the los angeles unified school district who are either uh, black, Hispanic, or other uh, person of color. And because of that percentage, they need, they need a lot of money from the government and they're, and they're uh, you know, under the previous, the federal bailout money, and they need Medicare for all. And so they're, they're demanding Medicare for all pass. They also want to have, they're telling the state of California, the state of California must pass a wealth tax, wealth tax, a new tax on unrealized capital gains, to California billionaires only, 1% a year until capital gains uh, taxes are met. They want a millionaire tax, uh, another, uh, so they want a billionaire tax and a millionaire tax imposed by the state of California, all so that they can go back to school safely. They want all this money collected. They demand, as far as uh, local support, defunding the police. So this is the teachers union on board defunding the police and you know they're talking about police violence is a leading cause of death and trauma for black people a serious public health issue therefore all police must be defunded they go on to demand housing security they want california to pass the idea that governor newsom we played his state of the state speech i guess in january this year uh, and he floated the idea that housing must be considered a human right housing 
guaranteed housing as a human right, right, kind of like life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, freedom of speech, a right to housing. And so the government has a duty, therefore, to provide for that right. For everyone doesn't have a, you know, housing, they're saying, yeah, state of California has to agree, housing is a right, and therefore we, uh, you know, we're insisting because, and they always go back in this lengthy document, extrapolate back to the point that this was a massive pandemic. We don't know if it's gonna happen again. We have a very large school system. We have, we have a higher than average percentage of students in the school system, Los Angeles Unified School District, who are uh, BIPOC was their term, the acronym I mentioned a moment ago. And so therefore, and some of them, there's a higher level of, of you know, housing insecurity. So therefore, the state must pass housing security for all. So everybody gets a free house or gets house provided by the government. Uh, they want a moratorium on charter schools. Of course they do, because charter schools provide competition to the public schools governed by these teachers unions. The teachers unions have long hated the charter schools because they provide competition, because they are actually paid for by taxes and they're public schools, except they're not controlled by the teachers unions, drives the teachers unions net. So in order to come back in the fall, and, and by the way, fall for their school district means August 18th would have normally been the opening day. So as of August 18th, they want all of this, including charter moratorium and all charter schools and increased financial support for undocumented students and families. So you see, because there's a virus, Los Angeles should get more money for illegal aliens, for undocumented students and their families demanding they got numbers here, billions and billions of dollars, not enough, not nearly enough to provide for all the needs of undocumented aliens. So they actually at least have the integrity to say, and they're closing out this document is, you know, we didn't think we didn't like things before. And their expression was normal wasn't working for us before. We can't go back. They are my very fine friends proposing a very Marxist, socialist, collectivist controlled school system in Los Angeles. They are teachers unions. They are the big teachers union in Los Angeles. And they're saying all of this Medicare for all free housing for all more money for illegal aliens. All of that is needed. Don't you know? in order to open schools after the COVID crisis forced the closing of schools this year, this academic year in March or so. I'm not sure when they closed in California. But I wanna tell you one of the reasons I'm telling, talking about in this show today. Obviously, to any sane person, obviously to any person realistic about finances, realistic about the fact that California is already broke because California promises free everything to everybody. They can't raise the taxes sufficient to pay for all the crazy they think up. But people recognize that's California. They're kind of, you know, they're way out there in the radical left. You know, they're already socialists. In fact, we lived there years ago. My husband, I lived there years ago. And even then people were calling it, you know, the Socialist Republic of California because it's very, very socialist Marxist mindset already. But what's astonishing and remarkable and why, why I want to talk about the show today is these people are saying things, demanding things that are ludicrous to most of America, ludicrous on the American playing field, given all the challenges American fa America faces, but they're not even slightly embarrassed. They're not saying, you know, these might seem a little extreme. These might seem a little bit, you know, past what we can afford, but here's our pipe dream. These are all written down as demands, as this is what we get. This is America. 
and we've gone so far left, we're going to demand free everything for everybody, and you're going to cough it up if you want to have our schools open. And I'm telling you that part of what's happened in this country over the last, you know, it was eight years under Obama, but even more so in the three plus years under President Trump, you've had a growth in the I'm not going to say in the size of the radical left in our country. Maybe you, you have the millennials who are kind of on board, but you have a growth in the stridency of the American left, of the, of the Marxist anti-American left. Stridency, unapologetic. They have managed, or at least in their worldview, to mainstream, to legitimize radically leftist ideas. So these teachers, these people who would be at school teaching all the children in Los Angeles Unified School District that America is the worst place ever, it's a deeply racist society, it's unfair society, that the entire problem is America itself. America should be drastically reformed into the Marxist vision they want, and they want to teach your kids, and they're not even a tiny bit, not even an iota. You know, this is a little bit out there. They think this is the norm. And under the three years of President Trump, you've had the left under, because you had, uh, unfortunately, you had the first avowed socialist candidate running for president 2016, Bernie Sanders, you know, continuing to try to mainstream un-American ideas, socialist ideas, mainstream them, grow the Democrat Socialists of America, pushes ideas on young people who've gone through, sadly, decades of education in our country, being taught by idiots like these people in Los Angeles. And so you have legitimizing the normalization of radical leftist ideas. So these teachers, I don't even know if they're aware how their demands sound to mainstream heartland America. I think they don't even realize how far off field they are, how far off track they are. But this is the kind of thing coming out of Los Angeles Unified School District. And I'll close out this segment by saying this about that. I'm going to guess that under our current administration in Washington, there's not going to be capitulation to these kinds of ideas. I don't think that Betsy DeVos or President Trump or the entire education establishment is going to just salute and say, okay, if that's what it'll take, sure, Medicare for all, free housing for all, lots of money for illegal aliens, you know, make everything free. And, and on top of that, I mean, the, the thing is so full of demands, I just, I just scratched the surface in what I read to you. This will not be received well in Washington, will not be received well by Betsy DeVos or the education department or whoever runs the education department next or by President Trump. But I want you to picture what will happen as early as next year, if we have a President Biden sitting in the White House. Joe Biden is not the mainstream, milquetoast, moderate Democrat that his handlers are trying to tell you he is. We're gonna do a segment about him a little later in the show, but I raise this in part to say, we need to live in a country where the people in power recognize what the Los Angeles Unified School District Union, the, the uh, Unified Teachers of LA, UTLA, we have to have a country where most of America and those in power can say, not a chance. We're not even negotiating this level of crazy with you. We'll negotiate hygiene protections. We'll negotiate how we're gonna handle hand washing. I guess if we have to talk social distancing, we'll negotiate that. But we're not changing the entire structure of our country. We're not changing to Medicare for all, socialized medicine, government-controlled health care, collectivist health care. 
We're not guaranteeing free housing for all. We're not guaranteeing any of that. It's not, and we're not even going to negotiate with you. We need that form, that strength of leadership in Washington to say to these people, no, and that is the end. Not happening, not even talking to you about it. You're off the reservation here in America. Here's what we do. We have, you know, we have this rules. We'll, ta- we'll help out with um, people who are, uh, you know, need special attention. And American for Disabilities Act. You may have to make some uh, revisions in the schools to deal with those kids as they come back after the virus. You may have to make some accommodations with respect to the ease of uh, hand washing frequently. But we're not selling out the country just because the United Teachers of Los Angeles asked us to do that. We'll come back to this because this is a crazy and yet why I think the story is so important. It's not just crazy because what they're asking is crazy, but it's deeply, deeply troubling because they think that this is legitimate. They think this kind of conversation belongs in America. They think the teachers in Los Angeles are going to tell America that we're going to def- we're going to overthrow our freedom, our system of governance, our uh, you know healthcare f- freedom for everybody, just because they've made a demand and they are after all the teachers of Los Angeles. It is it's a huge window on the audacity of the left and the embolden just the astonishing emboldenment, if that's a word, the emboldening of the American left under this eight years of Obama plus three years under Trump where you have the left gone apoplectic over everything he does. Well, I wanna hit two other stories today. Uh, one has to do with a crime spike in New York City. So in New York City, um, you know, they, we've had this discussion, we talked about in the show, that um, after, in light of the, um, the Marxist Black Lives Matter organization, in light of their marches, in light of the just astonishing level of destruction, property destruction, arson, murder, they were permitted to engage in in New York and cities around the country almost with impunity. And 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 one of the demands of these Marxist anti-American organizations was to defund the police. So we have in New York already had the vote. It hasn't actually occurred yet. The funding hasn't shifted, but a vote to shift money away, massive amounts of money away from the police over to, you know, social services and, you know, midnight basketball, who knows all the things that there are. But New York is in the middle of a crime spree, a horrible crime spree. So just, uh, this is a headline and it was on July 6th and it's probably killing the New York Times to have to run this story, but they had uh, in New York City over the weekend of July 6th, that's right after July 4th, 64 people shot. 10 dead, spike in gun violence, a spike in gun violence in New York City. We have a spike in gun violence, not just because we've been talking about defunding police. In fact, I say the defunding hasn't really happened yet, but it's, it's been voted upon, it hasn't happened. But what has happened is we've sent a signal, our society, our culture, the New York City, the city council has sent a signal of tolerance for violence of refusal to enforce the law, of hatred of police, and of encouragement of violent action on the part of its citizens. This is what is happening in New York. The message is out from New York City, from liberal sources around this country. We're not really going to prosecute you. I mean, after all, you're the victims. The, the whole, you know, the, the entire problem we have is the police. And so you have a message to the criminals of the country. You know, nothing's really going to happen. 
You've, we've now convinced Americans to uh, mistrust the police, to support defunding the police, have at it, crime spree, and you have both Mayor de Blasio in New York City saying, you know, well, I mean, he's, he's recently, I think we played it in the show yesterday or last week, but he, he uh, recently said, Mayor de Blasio in New York City said, you know, uh, we really got to be careful. We got to crack down this COVID. We can't be spreading the virus. So no outdoor events. No, none of these things we always do in the summertime, outdoor concerts and outdoor, um, you know, parades and all the kinds of stuff. We're not doing any of that stuff. You know, we, we can't have all the possible spreading of the uh, virus. So we're not doing that. But we are going to permit the continued Black Lives Matter marches. And again, to be clear, the Black Lives Matter organization has been exposed as a Marxist organization Marxist by its founders, meaning Marxist meaning overthrow the government of America. Marxist still, because we have as the key fundraiser for Black Lives Matter, Susan Rosenberg, a former weather underground criminal who, whose organizations, along with her involvement, engaged in the murder of police officers, robbery, theft, collecting massive amounts of ammunition and weapons designed to take down the American government. She is raising money for the BLM. So you have the extremely radicalized BLM, you have the unwillingness of anyone on the left to even say that, to even say, you know, some of this is a little crazy here, folks. So you have massive spike in crime in New York City. You had a most horrific incident, which involved a child, a one-year-old child in a stroller, shot to death during a cookout on an outside New York City playground. One-year-old child shot to death, shot in the stomach, died at the hospital later, there was a clip of this child's father. I decided not to play it because honestly, it's so sad. It's just unbearable. The poor guy is lamenting the loss of his child. So that this kind of violence, not just, you know, not, this isn't just gang shooting each other and not that, that that doesn't matter either. All violence is bad, but this is innocent people being shot up in New York City, a spike in crime, a message from the New York City mayor. We are never going to enforce, the, we're, we're not tight on forcing laws. We villainize the police, we criticize the police, we call out the police, we're endlessly calling the police too brutal, too racist, all of that emboldening the criminal element. That's all happening in New York City. Now let me have Matt the Wonderful play a clip for you from AOC, a member of the United States Congress, talking about the rise in crime in New York City. So why is this uptick in crime happening? Well, let's think about it. Do we think this has to do with the fact that there's record unemployment in the United States right now? the fact that people are at a level of economic desperation that we have not seen since the Great Recession. Maybe this has to do with the fact that people aren't paying their rent and are scared to pay their rent. And so they go out and they need to feed their child and they don't have money. So you maybe have to, you're, they're put in a position where they feel like they either need to shoplift some bread or go hungry that night. Um, maybe it's the fact that unemployment provisions have not been given to everyone. Maybe it's because of the fact that people have, some people still haven't gotten their stimulus checks yet. Okay, I actually want to make some really, really important points about the, that clip. The idiocy of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, pure, flat out idiocy. I will start with a very simple observation that nobody who's out in the middle of the night shooting up and, and engaging in violent crime is out there because her kid is hungry and they need to steal a loaf of bread. The child murdered in a New York City playground, a one-year-old shot while sitting in the stroller 
was not shot because the people who pulled up to the park, jumped out of their car and opened fire, didn't have their unemployment check, didn't yet get their relief check under COVID, didn't get enough unemployment paid, couldn't pay their rent so they had to go out and steal a loaf of bread. Obviously what she said is insane level stupid. I mean, just, I, I don't like to use the word stupid, but there's no, I mean, that's a nice word for her. Insane level idiocy out of her. But actually, there are much more, far more important points to make beside that that is inane on her part. One point is, you have to remember who got AOC elected, how she got there. AOC did go to college, majored in economics, what an embarrassment for that college, I think it was Boston University. She did go to college, but she was working as a bartender. She participated in a contest put on by the Justice Democrats. Justice Democrats, radical Marxist organization, looked around the country, tried to find Democrats holding office in Congress whom they viewed as not sufficiently radically Marxist, and then they targeted those sitting relatively sane Democrats in congressional seats by finding someone to challenge them, someone who could be exciting, someone who could be a really good challenge for them. They literally had tryouts. Justice Democrats, radical Marxists, want to take down our government and our economic system. Justice Democrats held tryouts and AOC won. She went to the tryout, literally her brother bragged. He had sent in her name and her video. And sure enough, she went to the tryout and she sits there blathering and, and she won the part. So she won the role. Justice Democrats, Marxist, anti-American America organization will take down America, chose Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez as the candidate. They molded her, they manipulated her, they worked with her to get her to the point that she could give voice to radical Marxist ideas and yet using her extremely simplistic, childish, embarrassingly foolish manner in which she speaks. And I want to tell you something else about that. I think a lot of people listen, if you pay no attention to politics at all, and you heard someone make the argument, well, there's an uptick in crime because you know we have unemployment, we have people didn't get their unemployment checks, some, some of the money from the stimulus didn't get out yet. Um, and so people are forced to go out and steal a loaf of bread. And you actually think those are the facts on the ground? that that's why there's an uptick in crime in New York City because of those factors, then she kind of makes a lot of sense. You could imagine people saying, well, gee, you know, she's making a good point. Somebody who's really hungry, yeah, they gotta go get food and maybe they might, you know, steal a loaf of bread. We're really gonna punish that. What she said has nothing to do with the facts on the ground. But to many people, she's persuasive. Ignorant people, she's persuasive. But the thing I really wanna drive home to you today is this. She may have the mental, uh, presence. The, you know, her, she speaks like a like a, like a five-year-old. Like a, I, I don't want to imitate her, but you know, like a five-year-old, simple-minded, uh, you know, just vacuous. She she just radiates. I have no brain at all. But she is she is effective, exactly because she speaks that way. She doesn't rant and rave like radical Marxists who are tearing down statues. She doesn't rant and rave like the people who are screaming in the face of the president or screaming in the face of other politicians. She talks in that five-year-old manner, that like a five-year-old would talk, 
well, let's think about this. And she, in fact, both times, I don't know if I had that in the little clip we played, but both times she goes, let's think about this, and points to her head and like, like a five-year-old. That is all contrived. And you have to get this about her. I'm not saying anyone who listened to this show would vote for her, but understand everything about her is tactical, is, maneuver, is maneuvering, is manipulation. Nothing about her is real. She didn't have Marxist tendencies. She didn't buy into the Marxist argument all the way along in her life. Or if she did, she never spoke up, never did a darn thing, never got involved in politics, but she was chosen by the Justice Democrats to be their voice. She was trained by them how to talk about the issues. So you see a rise in crime in New York City and is it rise in crime because the American left is lawless and allows a rise in crime because the American left does not like to have law and order. They favor criminals over the safety of, the, of law abiding people. But she is trained in her and her entire presence in Congress, her presence when she's giving little blathers like that. She's trained to manipulate. She's trained to dupe Americans into thinking that the entire problem in New York City and the crime problem has to do with the uh, issues in um, whether or not we're getting sufficient funding um, to New York City residents. She's been trained to talk that way. She's been trained to try to convince you of that. So she's not even though she sounds innocent and she sounds like just a sweet little person, she is trained to manipulate. Everything about her is contrived. It's really important to understand that because she is one of their best weapons in the Congress. You know, when she was elected for the first time, first time in her life, 2018, she was elected going off to Congress and member of the Democrat Socialists of America. And she was almost like a little media darling. Certainly on the left, she was a darling. She's, oh, she's so pretty and she's so articulate and she's really cool and she's young and she's Hispanic and she connects with people. And so people got drawn into following her. And now you watch in Washington, the four, the squad, they call them the four first year Democrat women who are members of Congress, all four of them, very radical, very leftist, but at the same time, able, as, as with her as her main spokesperson, able to convey radical, dangerous, horrible ideas in a Pollyanna five-year-old childish way. And on top of that, she's been effective. She has been effective in Washington, both because of her ability and willingness to get her mug in front of the camera all the time, and because she's very effective at mocking anyone who dares to challenge anything, any any piece of the radical left's agenda. Please understand about her. She's on a mission to bring about the Marxist overthrow of this country just as much as the Black Lives Matter. This is where she is. This is why she belongs to the Democrat Socialists of America. You cannot belong to the Democrat Socialists of America and believe in the founding ideas of America. It's one or the other. You cannot believe in socialism and believe in the freedoms guaranteed to America in our constitution, in our declaration, in our constitution. They are, they're polar opposites. You can't say, I'm a patriotic, I love America, and I wanna bring Marxism here and take away the freedom of the American people. America is about freedom. Marxism is about destruction of your freedom. That's where she is. That's why she does those little pressers like that, because in these little videos she puts out, 
because slowly she thinks, and she is, has been somewhat successful, eating away at the fabric of America, eating away at the love of America, eating away at the assumptions of many, of millions of Americans that America is a good and noble and decent country because Marxists will never get their way. They will never get their agenda if Americans continue to believe in the idea of America. I want to one more story today, folks, before we wrap it up. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, there's been a, a kind of a, a recent uh, dispute or kerfuffle, whatever word, um, relating to this thing, uh, a set of regulations inside the house, um, Housing Urban Development, HUD, um, which relate to affirmatively, uh, affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing, AFFH, Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing. To be very clear on the history of this, in the Fair Housing Act, which I think passed like 1968, there were obviously the point of the Fair Housing Act, one of the main points was to end discrimination and uh, redlining, which a lot of controversy exists about how genuine and widespread the redlining was. But there, was, there were arguments that there were uh, loans made by banks or lending institutions. There were all sorts of policies in place that were trying to keep America racially segregated. And so the point of the Fair Housing Act was to say, we're going to get after all of this. We're going to get after the fair housing um, mess, and we're going to try to uh, force these communities that will not that continue to discriminate um, to stop doing that. So what happened? So this passed passed back in 1968. All sorts of things happened over the years. But President Obama came along, uh, and he pat, he put in place regulations. Um, again, referring to it as the affirmative AFFH, affirmatively furthering fair housing. The gist of the idea was to tie federal funding that otherwise goes to communities around the country to the community's compliance with new demands made by HUD, Housing and Urban Development. New demands by HUD, forms to fill out, data to uh, study, data to cover, you know, your county, your city, what is the racial composition, uh, where, you know, is it, is it relatively integrated or is it not integrated? What is the, you know, the density of the population of various races? It was forcing cities to do a massive amount of data collection and, and computation. It was a lengthy set of, of things that, the, um, that had to be answered, all under the guise of the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing mission. And before I get into the details out, I want to just tell you a little observation about something. I'm constantly talking about preserving America, preserving the idea of America, and certainly, certainly, fighting discrimination based on race is a good and noble and right thing. We do, we did need in our country. We needed to have the civil rights movement. We needed to have the ending of segregation. We needed to have the, not just the laws that passed, but kind of the new social consciousness in our country that said, you know, we have a great country, but we have a history that has involved segregation and we want to do everything we can to make a more perfect union, to make America a more unified place in which people of every race, ethnicity, national origin have an equal opportunity to thrive, achieve, dream, to live out their dream. And that was a good and right motive. But back in the time of creating the Great Society, when Lyndon B. Johnson was trying to work on his effort to fight poverty, there was a, um, a, a kind of thinking that evolved. It didn't just start there, but it was very evident 
in uh, government at that time. In fact, there's a book out, The Great Society by Amity Schles, and um, I haven't read it, but a friend of mine read it and was just commenting about the idea that what you gather from her book, she's talking about how we got around to creating the Great Society programs, which were all of the, the anti-poverty programs, you know, the, the welfare and uh, food stamps and housing assistance, all of those packaged together was kind of the Great Society thing. And one uh, conclusion my friend drew from reading Emily Slay's book, which I do want to read, um, was the idea that, you know, you're sitting in Washington, you have all of these Ivy League educated people, and they're very, very bright, and they're very accomplished. Maybe they're not accomplished. They're very well educated. They have great degrees from great universities, and they're sitting around a big table in the White House and saying, yeah, we've got to do something about poverty. Well, let's try this. And so they look at you know, a, a map of America, and they see segments where there's poverty, segments where there's wealth. They see whatever numbers they looked at. And these are the grand meisters of the universe sitting in the White House in Washington saying, you know what? We could do this. What if we said, you know, what if we created? And so you had these people in Washington. They have a big pile of cash to spend from tax dollars, big pile of cash of, of your tax dollars to spend to try to fix inequities and poverty. Inequities, especially based on race. But, but you know, the great, the great society was not uh, uniquely or specifically focused on uh, black versus white. There just happened to be a higher, there was a higher level of poverty in, in some, especially some inner city black communities. And so the, these people sat in Washington thinking, well, how do we solve this? Okay, well, we're gonna you know, take this pile of money and put it in this program, and then Washington's gonna send out this money to this group and send out this money to this group. It was a grand meister you know, controlling. It was very much like the Soviet Union central planners sitting up there in Washington thinking, Oh, I see the problems. I know how you fix it. First, you force this here and you force this here. So what happened with the Great Society was, of course, and we've talked about many times in our show, among the many things that happened was we created the modern day welfare system. And the modern day welfare system, which you know, we've gone through reforms and, and, and more reforms and changes to the law. But the gist of it was you had money coming to, from Washington to low income households. And money coming from Washington, low income households, was predicated on whether or not there was a wage earner in the household. So to cut to the chase, and, and we talked about this in the show before, books have been written, you know, mounds have been written. The Great Society, the creation of the welfare programs, including uh, aid to families of dependent children, and SNAP, all the welfare programs, or they, they called it food stamps then, contributed to and, and statistically paralleled the breakdown of the nuclear family unit. When you tell people you can get more money from Washington when there isn't a wage earner in the home, you had this just grotesque rise. And again, it wasn't all with black families. The same thing happened in white families, but it was particularly uh, striking and notable in inner city America that you had essentially, to put the equation together, you had the rise of the Great Society and the destruction of the nuclear family unit went hand in hand, cause and effect. And it particularly hit hard black American communities. We've had Star Parker on this show. We've had Alan West on this show. Other black conservative activists speaking out against the welfare programs, pointing out that the welfare programs destroyed the black family. You know, the percentage of children born into single parent homes is very high in the black community. It's pretty high in the white community too, but 
much higher in the black community, and all the things that follow along from single-parent households, the increase, in fact, uh, the little clip we played from Marcellus Wiley uh, recently, what he made that point too, because he said he studied it in college at Columbia, how you know the, the likelihood of a young man, especially raised in a single-parent household by a mother, likelihood of that young man to end up uh, using drugs, in jail, dropping out of high school, joining a gang, in poverty, every bad thing you'd never want for any human being, all of those things are more likely for a child raised in a single-parent household. Point being, I'm going to get back to our story about housing, but the idea of all this was there was observations that you can make with respect to the um, lack of wisdom, the, uh, the, the, the lack of, how to say it positively, you can conclude that when people sit in Washington with big maps on the table and drawing out numbers and data and stats and putting programs in place, that you don't actually solve the problems and sometimes you make problems worse. The welfare programs on, on balance made things worse in terms of the differentiation in poverty didn't change between blacks and white Americans. The, uh, po the poverty programs may have put you know, food in the table every day, but they didn't lift people out of poverty. And literally, you know, many, many academicians and politicians have pointed this out. So now I get back to affirmatively furthering fair housing. President Obama, in furtherance of the Fair Housing Act of 1968, put in place extremely stringent things under HUD, essentially requiring HUD you know, to condition money to cities and counties by saying you don't get the money unless you submit these massive uh, bits of data, massive, da massive data collection. And on top of that, the program from Washington be became coercive. It became not just you cities that were not happy with the racial breakdown of your communities, uh, we're going to force you, as examples, force you, if you want to accept, get the funding that you need, you must build uh, densely packed multifamily units. You must accept in these uh, in neighborhoods in the suburbs, you must accept multifamily units, which often bring, they certainly bring poorer people in. They often bring crime. They, they just, they bring a, a destruction or a reduction in property values. They add all sorts of, of uh, harm to the communities in which they're forced. A really a spe a specific example I was reading about this morning had to do with an order out of HUD that related to Dubuque, Iowa. And Dubuque, Iowa, which, you know, I guess I've never been there, but I guess it had a uh, largely white population and there was a, a concern um, about how you had the um, white population maybe not really as uh, accepting. They didn't know why, but there was not a, a, a significant black population. So HUD, to go along with the affirmatively forwarding fair housing, moved individuals who live in who were black americans lived in chicago in inner city chicago moved those people as part of hud out of inner city chicago black americans into the community of dubuque iowa and you know whether they got along didn't get along i don't know but the point is this is just like the soviet union central planners just like the people in washington sitting there deciding from you know thousands of miles away hey i know what i'll do we're going to force this people to do this we're going to force these people to do this so what happened then so so obama has this affirmative furthering fair housing a lot of people did not like it complained about it so when ben carson came along uh, ben carson now who is the um you know is a and head, uh, the head of hud 
he basically said, you know, we're going we're gonna to pull back from the way Obama was doing this. We're going to put more power in the hands of local officials who understand better their neighborhoods, their communities. So he's saying we should not be running the show on affirmatively furthering fair housing from Washington, but in fact, we should have the local leaders who know their communities, who know the lay of the land, they know everything about the communities, let them be the ones more in charge of doing this. So this is the first answer uh, that Ben Carson gave. Um, and, and he actually had a statement I wanted to read to you. HUD's commitment to fair housing remains as steadfast as ever before, but this improvised rule reaffirms our mission of giving people more affordable housing options in communities across the country by fixing the old affirmatively furthering fair housing rule. Localities now have the flexibility to devise housing plans that fit their unique needs and provide families with more housing choices within their reach. So essentially, we have Ben Carson under President Trump say, we're not going to sit in Washington and shuffle this group of people from one city into somewhere else because we think we know better where they should live. We're going to put power back in the communities. We're still going to make sure that affordable housing is available in more places. We're going to put power back in the hands of the people. Well, the left is apoplectic and has been very, very critical of, of uh, Ben Carson because they want, they want Washington to just take charge and send out these, and also he, Ben Carson, he made many changes. Another one was he pulled back that, it was like a 19 page form with I don't know how many questions on it that they had to fill out, assess, you know, and, and it became, as he said, it was confusing. People weren't sure of what, you know, how to fill it out correctly. They were afraid they'd be punished and get funding cut off if they didn't do exactly what the form was requiring. So it was really, it made an ugly mess for local uh, jurisdictions. So now here we are in 2020 election cycle, and you have Joe Biden saying, among the many things he will do, is he's going to reactivate Obama's affirmatively furthering fair housing approach. He is going to have Washington through HUD with a very forceful program, getting on top of deciding which jurisdictions have insufficient integration, and it's going to be forced from Washington. He's bragging about that. And I want you to read, if you would like to read lengthy things, Biden has a, I think it's a 27 page document from his website. It's called the Biden plan for investing in our communities through housing. You can read it and you will understand. He very much has the leftist Marxist. We're going to take control. We're going to force these cities and counties. We're going to tell them who's going to live there. We're going to tell them when they're going to have, how they're going to change their zoning. In fact, that was one of the big pieces that was being pushed by the leftists and Biden has agreed to. Biden's been talking with Bernie Sanders about this. They've acknowledged that is, is that part of what has to happen in Washington is that Washington has to be the one making changes in zoning. These local zoning officials can't be trusted. You can't just let them make zoning decisions because you want to have, they in Washington want to have the densely packed multifamily housing plunked in the middle of a suburban area that has single family homes throughout the community. In fact, one of the big pushes of the real extreme Marxists, which Biden and Bernie both are at this point, is the idea, why does anyone get to have a single family home? Why do we need to have single family homes? You can find much literature talking directly about that. There's ultimately, you know, it's kind of a bourgeoisie, it's, you know, who are you to think a single family home is okay? The government will tell you the degree to which we'll have single family homes. 
decisions about zoning will come out of Washington. This is all part of Biden's plan. And so you had Biden bragging about this. You had Trump tweet out yesterday, a couple days ago, saying, you know, a lot of people are asking me to look again at this affirmatively furthering fair housing thing. You know, it doesn't sound right to me. And, and, you know, my caption for this segment, what I want to close by is by saying is this. The Democrats have been the architects of destruction of much of what was good about America. The Democrats have been the destruction, the architects of the destruction of the American education system, of what kids learn about America in schools. They have been the destruction of our borders, the destruction of our national sense of identity and sovereignty and pride in being Americans. And you have to understand, with Biden as president, he will be taking aim at suburbia, at America, the whole idea of people who you know, are successful, they work hard, they build their way up, they're finally able to afford a home, and they buy it in a safe suburb. And this is Joe Biden saying, you know what, you might think you live in a nice safe suburb out of the crime of inner city, but don't worry, we at HUD in Washington will be sending inner city to your neighborhood. This is what Biden is promising. This is what Trump is saying, you know, not on his watch. We'll have to go more into this because I'm out of time for today. But it's a really important thing, not just to understand specifically the housing issue, but the larger sense of how Biden and Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama and the leftists who run the Democrat Party today, what they think their job is. They think their job is to control everything about America, including housing, including zoning laws, including whether you're allowed to continue having suburbs filled with single family homes. This is the Marxist mentality I'm trying to, to get across over and over in so many different segments in the show. Understand America will drastically change, drastically change if Joe Biden wins the presidency and you have Democrat control of the House and Senate. You won't recognize your country anymore. At the close of every show, I try to tell you why the stories you talked about today matter to you. So we'll start with our first story from today. We talked about back to school teachers versus unions. The mainstream media interviewer was stunned by the unanimous agreement of authorities, and these were doctors on need for children to return in person to school. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so COVID data does not warrant a shutdown of schools. Data shows children are least vulnerable to COVID-19. Children need the social and educational experience of going to school. Teachers can be protected. Teachers want to teach. Um, also, um, the ha the, in the face of the unanimous sentiments regarding the health and well-being of children in LA, California Teachers Union has released demands for returning to work. You'll see the more on the next slide. The contrast could not be more severe. Americans must wake up. They must connect the dots of the radical left's agenda in public schools. On Los Angeles Teachers Union demands, Open acknowledgement, COVID-19 pandemic has opened the opportunity to fix society the way the leftist union wants it. Therefore, conditions for returning to work, defund the police, Medicare for all, moratorium in charter schools, guaranteed housing, billionaire tax, enhanced aid and millionaire tax, enhanced aid to undocumented students. Those union leaders hate America. Yet this is what Joe Biden supports. And this is what the unions want to teach America's children. The radical leftist agenda is plain to see if America is to be saved. American voters must turn out in droves to reject the Democrats. And AOC explains New York City crime spree. A one-year-old boy shot and killed in a stroller at a New York City cookout 
This kind of violent crime is not about the shooter's desire to put food on the table. It's about a societal collapse of law and order built on morality and decency. Do not be fooled by AOC's vapid airhead manner. She's a trained mouthpiece of the radical leftist social justice Democrats who are attempting to connect with and stir the ignorant to embrace the overthrow of America under the Constitution. Joe Biden embraces AOC and her message. He is all in with radical leftism. Americans must see the danger for what it is and massively reject it in 2020 election and on affirmatively furthering fair housing. Is an Obama-era social engineering on steroids forced introduction of low-end housing in affluent suburbs, allegedly about addressing disparate income and uh, dis excuse me, disparate impact of racism, really just about naked government power? HUD Secretary Ben Carson has questioned its meaning and value and not pushed it. Biden and Bernie Alliance promises full speed ahead, forced relocations to abolish the suburbs, attack suburban zoning. Examples of things to come. Chicagoans relocated to Dubuque, Iowa. Radical leftist social engineering dismisses, denies the role of behavior, morality, family in rising out of poverty over time demands instant redistribution as the only solution to inequality. Radical leftist social engineering always fails. Americans must reject it in the 2020 election. And my friends, before I wrap up today, I'm gonna tell you something very exciting. Please, tomorrow, tune in to my show for tomorrow, Wednesday and Thursday. Tomorrow, I will have both Dr. Bartlett back in studio. He joined me about a week ago or two weeks, a week ago, talking about the amazing results he has found with the COVID-19 crisis and his treatment in a very simple, inexpensive asthma treatment. He's coming back along with a member of Congress who also happens to be a doctor. He'll be in studio, both talking about their efforts to get America to wake up to realize that the coronavirus crisis doesn't have to be the crisis it is, that we can turn the corner with treatments readily available. So. Congressman Abraham, also Dr. Abraham of Louisiana, will be here. And also on Thursday, Dr. Barlow is joining me one more time on Thursday. He'll have with him a patient, a person who was literally gasping for his last breath of life and was completely recovered using the treatment that Dr. Bartlett is now trying to tell America about. Both those shows will be very helpful for you to see, very helpful for you to share with your friends. And speaking of sharing, if you're one of the thousands and thousands and thousands of people emailing me, asking me for a copy of Dr. Bartlett's paper, he wrote a paper about this treatment protocol, I urge you to go to the website, my website, americacanwetalk.org. On the homepage, in the blog, very first article in the blog, you can click on that, and in the blog, you can click on his paper, the PDF to his paper, because I literally, people, I cannot keep up with all the email requests. I've tried to respond really for every one response I send. I get 100 or 150 more emails in. So I don't know if I'll ever catch up with responding to all the people asking for that paper. But you can get it on our website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage under blogs. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This is America Can We Talk. Thank you for tuning in. Tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time to my show where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America? Can you